0: If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Some of you mentioned last week, but I did get some new glasses because, well, I'm getting old. (laughs) Older. Problem is, I had them all the way on, and when I had them all the way on, I can't see you, so I'm going to be even older looking. I'm going to have them on my nose here this morning so you can make fun of me later. Luke chapter 6. G.K. Chesterton once defined a paradox as truth standing on its head, calling for attention. And when you read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus Christ was a master when it came to paradoxes. Last is first. Giving is receiving. Dying is living, losing is finding, least is greatest, poor is rich, weakness is strength, serving is ruling. Jesus, time and again, is truly teaching us what our priorities should be in this world. And Jesus presents for us a world that is upside down from the world in which we live. It seems flipped around from the reality that is around us. And so that leads us to Luke chapter 6. We've been journeying through this gospel now for a number of months. Lord willing, we'll be in this gospel for the rest of this year and into next year. And we left off last week at verse 19, and we're going to begin here in verse 20. And so here's the main idea. Here's what I want you to get from this morning's sermon. So if you write down anything, write down this. Jesus graciously leads us to understand what the Christian life should look like for someone who belongs in the kingdom of God. Jesus graciously leads us to understand what the Christian life should look like for someone who belongs in the kingdom of God. So our intent for the next this, this week and the next four weeks is to, to dive into the rest of chapter 6 and five sermons total. And Lord willing, we're going to understand what the Christian life looks like and, and he turns the world on its head and shows us how we should live. And it's, it's really shocking. It's shocking because it's, it's countercultural to what we see in our world, perhaps even in your own life or even in the, the church even. So look at Luke chapter 6, seven verses this morning, verse 20, and follow with me as I read. And he lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, "'Blessed are you who are poor.'" But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." As you read this, and hopefully you got a chance to look at it before this morning, these seven verses are broken up into four parts. Four blessings and and four woes, and and they correlate with each other. So that's my outline. Real simple. We'll take each blessing and woe and link them together as we walk through this passage. And uh, just so you know, if you're taking notes, my first point will be the longest point in the sermon. Uh, The others are much shorter. But before we get into that, I want to talk about what blessedness is. The word blessedness, because he says this multiple times, Matthew's gospel talks about this in the Beatitudes, and most likely it's been emptied of its meaning in some ways. Some translations say happy in Matthew's gospel, doesn't necessarily in Luke's gospel, but I think that, that translation of happy misses the point. When I think of happy, I think of my daughter who wants ice cream, and when we stop to get ice cream, we get two, two scoops of ice cream on her cone, and she walks out happy, and then when they fall on the ground, she's no longer happy. But when Jesus says we're blessed, it's not a description of getting ice cream. It's, it's not a, just a temporary enjoyment. It's a description of how God sees us and not how we feel at this particular time. And I'm not saying there are any feelings connected to this blessedness, but what I'm saying is it's what God thinks is more than our feelings. What, what he thinks of us and what we know to be true because our, our feelings can lie to us. It's, it's a description of those of whom God is pleased to be chosen. It means to be approved. It means to have the smile of God on a person's life. And the emphasis is the objective, not the subjective here. It's the word actually, to be privileged, to be supremely favored. God's declaration of blessedness or favor is far greater in significance than the feelings of happiness that ebb and flow through the course of our lives. His view of us as Christians is greater If you were to think deeply about this and look back over this past week, you would agree with me that too much of the time we seem to be moved by happiness. Not because of what God has done, but simply because things go well. We're happy with the week and how things fell into place. We're happy with the circumstances, or we're unhappy with life and how things are going. But Jesus says here that Christians are to be blessed people, To be blessed by God is to have an inner joy that is untouchable by the world. To be blessed by God is to have an inner joy that is untouchable by the world. And as we see in this passage, who are the blessed ones? It's those that are poor, those that are hungry, those that are grieving, those that are hated. Those are the blessed ones. Those are the favored ones. And I would guess that this morning that you church spent time looking for favor in all the wrong places and all the wrong people, wishing for more beauty, wishing that you had more money or more talents or smarts, wishing to have more influence and prestige and popularity and significance. But when we go after that, we're marching to the wrong beat and we're living for the wrong kingdom. And when we look at this passage here this morning, we realize that, That Jesus is saying, is what he's saying to us is truly upside down from the world in which we live. But maybe, just maybe, Jesus' kingdom is right side up and the kingdoms of our world are upside down. So Luke only gives us a few sentences of a sermon and, and, and this and the Beatitudes here compared to Matthew's gospel. Most of your Bibles have the word beatitude maybe at the top of a description. It's from the Latin word beatitudo, which literally means blessedness. So these are teachings of blessedness for the believer. These beatitudes are, are preparatory in the sense that they slay us so that we may live. They, they cut us down to size so that we may go in and, and find enjoyment in God. They hold us up against God's standards for the kingdom so that we can clearly see our need for him. They, they slice through the, delusion, the delusions of this formula of Christianity and rightly expose the shallowness of evangelicals who, who give all the right answers but don't know Christ intimately. So these seven verses are completely opposite to the world in which we presently live because no one wants to be poor. Oh, we want our own, our own power and kingdom. Those who are hungering are missing out, they think. We want satisfaction now. Mourning, weeping, grieving. This isn't the life that we should look for in this world. And who wants to be hated? Right? Is anyone saying, Just please hate me? It's countercultural. No one wants to be excluded or reviled or their name spurned by others. So everything that Jesus says to us is completely opposite to what we're hearing and what we're being fed today in this world. It's the opposite, it's a whole new ethos. You know what that word means, right? A new culture. Chick-fil-A has an ethos, right? What are you supposed to hear when you get your food served? What's the proper response when you say thank you? My pleasure. That's an ethos right there, man. This is an ethos for us as Christians. It's a distinguishing character, something that sets us apart from the world, so we, we look at this ethos here, this culture which you live in. So look at the first one, the poor and rich. Verse 20 and verse 24, I'll read them together. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Then in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So put yourself in the position of of these listeners here, okay? Can you imagine pulling yourself away from the daily work to sit on a grassy knoll and now hear Jesus begin his teaching? And he's saying, those of you who are poor, you, you are really, really blessed by God. For those of you who are hungry, just take heart. You will be satisfied. If you're weeping and grieving, be encouraged. You will laugh. People angry at you and they speak ill of you and they put you down. Rejoice! Leap for joy! And we think, really? Jesus, really? We are blessed because we're poor and hungry and grieving? And for us to understand what he's communicating here, we have to go back to the Old Testament because Jesus has dramatically stated a principle rooted there. The New Testament doesn't necessarily see poverty as a blessing per se, though. Proverbs 30, verse eight and nine says, "Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, "Who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God?" We know historically that God gave material blessings to His people. When they left uh, Egypt and the Egyptians, he gave them the plunder, and he was bringing them to a land filled with milk and honey. And in addition, we find in the Old Testament that being in poverty was not highly esteemed. It was a miserable existence and humiliating for people. If money is power, then the poor are powerless and their powerlessness is regularly exploited. R. Arcan Hughes talks about this in his commentary. He says, nevertheless, there were those, the blessed poor in the Old Testament times after the fall of the nation when God's people were carried into exile into Babylon and they were disposed, exiled poor. Of course, not all the exiles remained poor in Babylon. Some managed to do very well for themselves. But by compromising, those who sold out to the Babylonian culture, who adopted their way of life, were able to become quite wealthy. And when it came time to return to build the fallen walls, they didn't want to go back. They found their comfort without God. Whereas the uncompromised, the poor, they wanted to return. And it brings us back to the most prominent Old Testament quotation thus far in Luke's gospel. Do you remember a number of weeks ago in chapter 4 where Jesus opens the scroll and where does he read from? Isaiah 61. That was the beginning of his public teaching and the opening lines reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor in Isaiah 61 were the exiled people of Israel who had not compromised with the pagan conquerors. They knew they couldn't deliver themselves, and they longed for the Messiah and his salvation. They wouldn't be talked into supporting the Babylonian system. They were sold out to God alone. And Jesus, how does he come into this world? He came as a poor person, born to a peasant teenager, and then lauded at the temple as a baby And who praised seeing the Lord, the two poor servants of the Lord, Simeon and Anna. Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He he would not be comforted by this world. He longed for the Messiah. And Anna, who did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. These two had no attachment to the riches and possessions of this world. They longed for the kingdom of God. And they saw Jesus. They were the blessed poor. And now Jesus stands before this this group. Remember last week, the calling of the apostles. So the 12 are there and then the disciples there. And it says also earlier, uh, the the crowd. And so this this large group is here to hear Jesus teach. And there were some in front of them who weren't always poor in the world's eyes. Tax collectors and sinners alike who had lots of money in this world. They would not compromise with this fallen culture. They believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope for this world and he's the only way to the Father. And they stand true in their relationships and their public conduct. Whatever wealth they, they have does not come through this ethical compromise or adoption of everybody's doing it in business practices. No, they don't love money. They, they give it up. Right? We, we read that a, a few chapters ago of Matthew. When, when he was confronted with Christ and he decided to follow, he gave it up. They they don't own and hold their earnings tightly because they've given everything up to follow Jesus. They know that he is their only hope. He is their life. And so Jesus stares at his disciples in this plane and says, blessed are you who are poor. They have his approval, his smile on their life. They've identified that they owe Jesus everything. It's the blessing of emptiness and those, only those people will enter the kingdom. This idea then translates to the spiritual. You may be asking, is, is being poor related to how someone enters the kingdom? In other words, how they get saved or is it the conduct of someone that is saved or in the kingdom already? And the answer is yes. Both are true. I used to think years ago that being a christian was like riding a bike you hopped on you had no ability to start riding god would hold on to you help me pedal get me going but once i got it god you can just let me go i got this you, you can step in if you think i'm going to fall but otherwise i'll just see you in heaven later but that's not christianity Being spiritually poor isn't just the first step in entering the kingdom, it's the continual conduct of those that live in the kingdom. This is the ethos of kingdom citizens. The spiritually poor have no illusions about themselves. They have no hope in and of themselves. They know they need to be rescued. And when a person is truly spiritually poor, he has identified his spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they realize that they need help from the outside. Being spiritually poor is realizing you're spiritually bankrupt. You need God and you know it. And after acknowledging your spiritual poverty and bankruptcy, You know the culprit is your sin. Not your mama's sin, not the culture's sin, not the government's sin, it's your sin. And you're grieved. You weep over your sin. And when you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, it's not depressing. It's liberating. Why? Because you no longer have to lie. You don't have to hide a false illusion of self-righteousness is an incredibly terrible burden to carry, my friends. To live in a fantasy world of your alleged holiness and goodness, all the while stumbling and, and falling and failing, hoping that no one truly sees you as you truly are. Living day in and day out, hoping that you don't get exposed. But when you live as one who is spiritually poor, When you fail, you're not shocked. You then fully realize again of the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ which holds you up when you're obeying and redeems you in times of failure and sin. Perhaps this is you, my friend. And God is using this text this morning in Luke's gospel to open your eyes that you've been living outside and away from Jesus Christ. You've been striving to earn your own acceptance toward God. But it's a false illusion of self-righteousness. And Jesus is warning you. He says, woe to you who are rich, who believe that you're self-sufficient, for you have received your consolation. If you live in self-sufficiency, you have already as much comfort as you ever will get. So friends, turn from your independence and turn to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin of trusting yourself and trust in Christ alone. He's not standing there shaking his head in disgust. He's welcoming you home. And Christians, you need to hear me this morning too because this is the greatest hypocrisy for us. We might be quick to confess we're sinners, but we don't want others to do it for us. You know, when someone comes to me and complains about my sin, I should say, be happy, my friend. I'm much worse than you think. I realize I'm spiritually poor, and I desperately need God's help. I'm worse than you think, but I have a Savior who rescues me. Are you spiritually poor? Do you recognize it? How does this play out when you sin? And when you and your sin have been exposed, and friends, it will be. All of our sins will be made public. If you are spiritually poor, you don't have to make excuses. If you're spiritually poor, you don't have to run. If you're spiritually poor, you don't have to put up walls. If you're spiritually poor, you acknowledge your sin, you turn from it, and you run to the cross. Because you recognize again and again your need for a savior, a king, that's not found in this world. Did you notice that in verse 20? that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here in these verses. And what he's gonna lay out and what it is is just the distinguishing characteristics to the ethos of those that belong to that kingdom. And what does a kingdom allude to having? A king. And in Luke 2, we are introduced to the birth of this king. Chapter 2, we're, we're given a glimpse of the early childhood of this king. In chapter 4, we have the formal announcement of this king and his work. And it begins in Luke four forty three. And He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And so this whole sermon here in Luke 6 is the manifesto. uh, explanation of a new kingdom the radically reversed upside down world that Jesus has come to reveal to us it's definitely a sermon of a man who stayed up all night to pray right this king is not preaching the gospel that the world preaches the poor will be blessed because they rely not on themselves but on God alone and this kingdom has a king and he's right in front of them But will they hear him? Will they listen? So that's the poor and rich. Second, the hungry and full. Look at verse 21 and verse 25. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then in verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, the Old Testament doesn't directly equate blessing with physical hunger, but it does commend a different kind of hunger. The Psalms give us spiritual hunger David writes in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And David's imagery is passionate, his soul thirsts, his spiritual longing is like a a bodily ache, a life apart from God is, is dried up, and in his coming earth, Christ became the source of all satisfaction. Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this hunger and satisfaction have material and spiritual overtones. Those who lack physical comforts in this life are most likely to turn to God's promise for help. Those who are full and are experiencing now fullness and it's all the comfort that they'll ever enjoy. And they will go hungry in that future day when God finally sets all things right and gives justice to everyone. And Luke is giving us the sense of this temporariness of hunger and of weeping. They happen now, but such temporal poverty and hunger and weeping will barely be a memory in the kingdom of God. These woes that he gives us, they they come to the rich and the full and those that are laughing now and those who are popular by the world's standards. These people appear to enjoy all the world has to offer, but there's there's no mention of the Lord in their life. They live it up without Jesus. The rich have received their comfort. Their comfort was their money, their stuff. But when they outlive their money, there will be no comfort for them. Their money will outlive its usefulness in this life. And hell, for them, will bring hunger, a constant gnawing in their guts. They had it all in this life and will have nothing in the life to come because they never had Jesus Christ. It's easy to grow comfortable in this world This place has allowed some of us to grow wealthy and full. But friends, there's a great spiritual danger here. Some have grown spiritually numb by all their possessions. And because our stomachs and our houses are full, we may not hunger as we should for a different kind of life a different kind of world. And may we never become so well-fed that we never hunger for the things that are from above. Third is the grieving and the laughing. Look at the second half of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then second half of 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus is not preaching against laughter for the Christian. He's not saying, Blessed are the grim and gloomy. Solomon says that a joyful heart is good medicine. It's good to laugh. What Jesus is going after here is the superficial and the shallowness that characterizes this world the inability to weep at the right things, and the ability to laugh at the wrong things. Man, this is seen so clearly right now in this election cycle by both candidates. If you wanna know someone's character, find out what makes them laugh and what makes them weep. What we laugh at and what we weep over indicates our value of life. And values are part of our maturity. Those who weep here are blessed because they recognize the depth of their sin and allow their hearts to be broken by it. This weeping is gospel focused. It's not grieving of the loss of a loved one, it's grieving of the loss of your innocence, grieving at the loss of your righteousness. This is a deeply felt sorrow for sin and all of its consequences and its corruption and its heartbreak and devastation and disgrace. And this is the ethos, ethos of a member of the kingdom of God. He doesn't ignore himself by being amused by the thrills of this world with endless entertainment and recreations, nor does he excuse his sin belittling his sin, denying his sin by weighing it in the balance of what he regards as good behavior and good deeds and a good life. And you can hear the apostle Paul grieving himself in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions, Paul writes, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he cries out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Death. Paul is grieving his heart. You can hear it. It makes him grieve. He mourns in what he ought to be and what he is. Does this sound like you? Have you experienced? Have you felt this way that Paul does? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you weep over the sin of others? We're called to weep over lost souls, over people who will go into an eternal darkness without Jesus Christ. Or to weep over the world's misery, over the injustice that falls on so many helpless people, over the unfairness that victimizes the weak, over child abuse, over battered women, over adultery, over divorce, over betrayals, over rejection, over loneliness, over those who now laugh, but who, unless they turn to Jesus Christ, will suffer God's condemnation forever. Friends, what we laugh at and what we weep over indicates our values in our life. Last is the last couple here, the hated and the loved. Verse 22 Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. People will hate us for our love for Jesus, not because of our obnoxious behavior as Christians. People will hate you when you are devoted to God above this world and the things in this world. I mean, this is the most strange of Jesus's four beatitudes in this section, from the world's perspective. Hatred, ostracism, insult, scorn are hardly good recipe for blessing. But that is the expectation for the child of God. And just because we should expect it, doesn't mean it's pleasant. Spurgeon wrote. Persecution of the tongue is more common, but not less cruel than that of the hand. But his second statement in verse 26 is shocking. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Isn't that a strange statement? That the danger hangs over those people who are too popular for their own good. He's saying if everybody speaks well of you, Watch out. A person of integrity and righteousness will be bound to alienate some people in this world. The prophets of God were objects of hatred. Their message of repentance and holiness was scorned and resented, whereas the preaching of the false prophets was welcomed because they told the people exactly what they wanted to hear it's itched their ears. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil and they count on the Son of Man. In verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I don't know if you know this, but Charles Spurgeon struggled for years with Depression. During a stressful time, when he was depressed by criticism inside the church, his wife took a sheet of paper and printed out the Beatitudes in a large old English script and tacked it to the ceiling over his bed. She wanted the reality to saturate his mind morning and evening. And as we learned in Paul's letter to Timothy, everyone who lives righteously will be persecuted. And we need to remember James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the test of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus is saying, if we're experiencing that kind of persecution, that we should take heart. It puts you in good company of godly prophets of old, who themselves were despised and killed because of their work, for the Lord. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. So friends, don't give up. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy. This rejection isn't pointless, it leads somewhere. It's the pathway to joy, Jesus says. Well, let me end here. And if I haven't made you uncomfortable or upset, I'm gonna do it now. Jesus is showing us a different way to live, an upside down way compared to this world. Have you been so focused on this life and this country and this election cycle that you've completely missed the kingdom of God? What if this country collapses with anarchy from the left and the right and our religious freedom is gone? And all that remains for us is prison, exile, fear from the authorities that are over us. What will you do? Have you been trained to live in this world? I was properly chastised by John Piper this week. And I'm here to tell you my job as your pastor is not to teach you how to live a carefree and comfortable life in this world. My job to shepherd you in preaching, and to develop in you a real radical way of living as a Christian in this world. Have we learned to live like the believers in the book of Hebrews 1034? For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. As Christians, we have better possessions than what we see here on earth. Do you really believe that? Do you realize that we as Christians are citizens first of a whole another kingdom that's not of this world? That is the flag that we should be waving. That is the flag that we should be defending. We are sojourners and exiles waiting for our king, awaiting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we convinced to live as Christ and to die as gain? Or is our sight, our hearts, and our words diverted to this nation, to this election, to this present moment? Our job isn't to save America. It's to save souls. But even in that when we keep the main thing the main thing Jesus Christ it will affect our country and it will affect our world. America is an experiment but God's kingdom is eternal. Our most basic political belief as Christians is this, God is king and he's not up for re-election. So who are you living for? Are you a part of his kingdom? And one of the reasons Jesus paints such broad strokes of black and white with no gray to be seen is to draw the line and make us examine ourselves. Which side are you on? You are decidedly for Jesus or you're decidedly against him. There's no middle ground. Jesus forces you to get off the fence and decide. Are you living for this life and its temporary pleasures or are you living for Jesus and the kingdom to come? To live happily ever after, you must adopt God's values while rejecting the world's values. Do we really believe that poverty and persecution endured for Jesus' sake are positive blessings? Do we really believe that riches and worldly enjoyments and even popularity with people are more important than salvation in Jesus? Do we really think that the blessings of knowing God with the troubles from this world and the attacks that we will sustain are better than having all the money and comfort and good name that the world affords us? see Jesus doesn't value what people value he values himself above all things and blesses those who do the same and he values souls too your one soul possesses infinitely more value than everything else in this world combined friend the value of the soul is kept when the soul is given to Jesus Christ so friends follow Jesus and suffer now But realize that we'll be greatly rewarded later when we see our Savior face to face. And it will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, the sway of this world is strong. And we feel so tugged in so many directions. And we need your help. And we ask that you would hold us tight. And we know we can trust you to do that. We thank you that we can trust in you in the midst of turmoil in our lives. And we pray that we will take seriously your calling upon our lives to live for you alone. For us who are poor, that we would be encouraged that God knows our our plight and he has sent a rescue. For us that are hungry, that would we'll be blessed, that we we'll be satisfied in you. For those who are weep, to remember that we will laugh one day. And for us that are persecuted, for Jesus' sake, that we take heart that Jesus is coming back soon. And we we'll rejoice in that day, leaping for joy, where we will finally see you face to face. And Lord Jesus may they may that day come very soon. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.